All right. Uh, so welcome to, I believe we are now on session 17 of uh, the Stafford Beer Brand of the Firm Reading Group with General Intellect Unit. Today we are finishing off uh, chapter, what chapter are we going now? 12. Chapter 12, and we are going to look at the final section, Notes on the Operation of System 3, starting on page 175. Um, okay, so I'll just read some of the uh, intro text here, and then we'll, we'll have a bit of conversation. Uh, here is the highest level of autonomic management and the lowest level of corporate management. Its function is primarily to govern the stability of the internal environment of the organization. The neurophysiological model of the process was advanced in Chapter 8, and its managerial analog was discussed in Chapter 9. There are three kinds of information system converging on System 3. The first belongs to the vertical command axis. System 3 is part of corporate management and therefore a transmitter of policy and special instructions to the divisions. It is also a receiver of information about the internal environment, which it handles in three ways. One, as a metasystemic controller downwards. Two, as the most senior filter of somatic news upwards. And three, as an algodonode. Secondly, System 3 is the only recipient of information filtered upward from System 2. The mechanics of this process have ju has just been discussed. Thirdly, System 3 handles the parasympathetic information circuits, which are antithetic to those of the sympathetic or System 2 circuits. All right, uh, so anything to discuss here? There's quite a lot of information packed into that paragraph. Um, Jake H, please go ahead. Yeah, I guess I've just like got a question, I guess, about what the that last sentence there, that it handles the parasympathetic information circuits which are antithetic to those of the sympathetic. So it's like uh, the effect of what the system two circuits do is this yeah. is this like the dampening effect of it's, the ex, excitatory effect of system two like overcoming the threshold needed to like push information to system three it's so, what it's what we saw in section two of the book uh when it was talking about how uh the sympathetic and parasympathetic systems interact with each other so yeah, the ex an excitatory uh, action in the parasympathetic system can actually dampen the sympathetic system, uh, which would here be system two. Uh, Shane, please go ahead. Uh, one thing that just popped into my head is maybe that um, system two is helping the subunits to kind of maximize their 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 production, right? Like there's a certain maximalism that this the the um that the information integration is aiming towards. You you want all these performance indices to go up and up and up. Whereas and that and that's and that's fine. That is usually probably desirable, except system three could intervene and say cool it with the knock it off with the oxygen. We don't want too much of that stuff. That's that that stuff's crazy, you know. Um so it's Probably yeah, it, it's acting as a dampener to the perhaps overperformance of some some organ. Yeah, I mean, you could see like uh, you know, say system four says, uh, "Look, we're changing product lines. We need to furlough a bunch of production." Um, that could dampen production under the control system two. Um, uh, we could also see like, oh, everyone needs to take a vacation. You know, that could be a kind of like forth, uh, forethought, uh, foresight kind of thing um, that's that's handled by system four, passing it on to system three. Uh, OK, so Matt, go ahead. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, um, uh, an example could also be like um, uh, um, a central bank, like uh, uh, fussing with interest rates. Like, like the business cycle is kind of this too. Like you, you have periods of expansion where like a lot of stuff is, you know, uh, a lot of deals are being made and a lot of ventures are being made. And then, you know, you have periods of contraction where, you know, you start to see, you know, if, uh, uh, you know which of the ones uh, were, you know, the, the, the ones that were kind of unsound, you know, those are going to go out of business. 
So, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, I think uh, there's a lot, uh, uh, you know, I was just reading um, some more uh, People's Republic of Walmart, you know, like, like you know, they're talking about, you know, the, the role of uh, uh, central banks and like regulating this kind of stuff. So, you know, I see the system three stuff uh, going on there. Yeah, definitely. Like uh, raising the interest rate to reduce lending um, can be uh, can be a way to to uh, adjust for an overheated economy, um, assuming we're not. You know, <laughs> assuming you're not in a very, very strange state of capitalism like we are in now, where it's like, yeah, you can you can uh, hit that break. But as soon as you do, the whole thing's going to go into panic. Uh, so it's pretty much effectively like not on the table. Um, uh, OK, so let's uh, continue on then. Um, I did want to just. Uh, briefly mentioned in the previous paragraph. Uh, so the vertical command axis transmits uh, s instructions downwards to system ones uh, through system three on the vertical command axis. Yeah. Um, and um, the again, there is that function it does of uh, filtering uh, upwards, which I have a little bit of hard time distinguishing from its role as an algodonode because its filtering is kind of like the way it does the filtering is kind of uh, through that algodonode, right? Like the it's like, oh, yeah, there's like a certain level of information coming in from system two, but it's not important enough to send up to system four. And then eventually it hits a threshold and it fires, right? Um so that those seem to kind of be similar uh, sorts of functions that are going on there. Uh, Shane, uh, can you go ahead? I wonder when he mentions OO and lastly as an algodonode, I think he's emphasizing that like an, an algodonode is, is is often like a filter that is conditioned by pain and, and pleasure signals. So there's there's the, there's the filtering. It needs to readjust its own filtering in accordance with these these sort of like adaptive uh, triggers. Right, right. I guess in the sense that it receives information from many different uh, areas. Uh, Matt, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think it's also that, like, uh, um, uh, I think he uses filtering, like, uh, if I remember right, like, uh, you know, sort of like kind of like a reduce, too. Because, like, you know, what, what, when it actually talks to the um, system that's above it, like, it, you know, it's translating it into system four as meta language. Like, you know, uh, you know, it's aggregating all these data sources from all these different places, but like it doesn't, you know, just do that as an info dump on system four. Like, it, you know, it prepares like a little one page report or, you know, it's a dashboard that, you know, just has like a very, you know, a very highly summarized, you know, table and graph. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, there's a report repair. Uh, there is a report prepared. Uh, it is sent on to President Trump and then he doesn't read it. Uh, <laughs> uh, Shane, go ahead. <laughs> There's a there's a term in math, and it, it especially pops up in functional programming languages like Haskell and stuff. And the term is fold. Um, a fold is a function that can you can use to then implement things like filters. I think I think a lot of stuff like filters, summing, um, and a bunch of other sort of things can all be implemented in terms of a fold. A fold is a very fundamental kind of operation on information. And I kind of like to use that term in my own head, right, for a lot of the stuff that Stafford is referring to. It's it's folding information. And some of that might be like what we would classically think of as a filter, where it's like, you know, take the red cards and throw the black cards away. Um, that would be filtering. But like compressing information or summing it up and like parceling it into little buckets and stuff would, would be a fold like kind of operation that wouldn't wouldn't exactly correspond to what we call filtering. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, definitely. Cool. Uh okay, I think that helps clarify that section. Uh so the first task now is to examine this third informational component more carefully. And this is done in the recollection of earlier explanations. The key to an understanding of the parasympathetic component of the model, the left-hand chain of figure 27, is the limitation of the sympathetic or system two component. All along, we have insisted on the ongoing nature of routine control. We do not suppose that a firm is virgin territory over which we may trample, making plans ready for the day when something will happen. 
The firm is happening now. The firm's activities are well understood. Its regulators at System 1 and System 2 are regulators, i.e. they are error-controlled feedback servos. It follows that there are models of standard behavior enshrined in the control mechanisms we have so far discussed. They are the paradigms against which error is measured. From the viewpoint of corporate management, however, and in this case of System 3, such paradigms assume too much. They take no account of the external environment of the organism as a whole, only of the external environment of their own divisions. They may be regulators of a local homeostasis, then, but System 3 is the only competent regulator of organic homeostasis, since it alone has a System 4 input. What we have so far, Systems 1 and 2, uh, created, it follows, is a way of handling divisional control and a way of handling interdivisional interaction on the assumption that the divisions between them know all there is to know about the adaptation and growth of the total organism. This they do not. In fact, it is easy enough to propose examples of total behavior which, because they are novel, heuristic, evolutionary, cannot be adequately represented within System 2 with its paradigmatic models although they may be communicated to System 1 by the direct somatic system. Divisional directorates will understand these latter messages, of course, because they are themselves masters of the company's operations. The trouble is that their local regulatory centers are not organized to handle what is not routine. In particular, they are not organized to represent, to attend to, to measure, to transduce, other than what locally happens. This is a problem of requisite variety. Okay, so this is the... Uh, oh, should I get to the answer? I guess I should read the answer, and then we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the whole thing. The answer, learned from the autonomic nervous system, is a direct parasympathetic access to the divisional operations themselves. There, under the local supervision of the divisional directorate, antithetical modes of control may be established. These are antithetical precisely in the sense that they handle aspects of affairs not handled via System 2. Remember, the cholinergic, cholinergic and adrenergic chemistries of the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems. The distinction between them is not absolute, any more than our diagrams are absolutely correct in dividing the autonomic system as a whole into quite separate parts. But the main architecture and chemistry is clear and useful. Okay, so um, let's uh, talk about this section here where we, we see the, the sort of parasympathetic role. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, I love this emphasis on um, separating the routine from the sort of exceptional stuff, right? That like we have we have these stacked regulators, and it's it's there's like adequate regulation up up and down the stack. Um, but at each layer, there's a new new sort of emergence where okay, every, everything below this layer is taken care of. It's fairly routine stuff. But where does the novelty come from? And where does the handling of novelty come from? Well, it comes from the next layer up. I mean, the next layer is helping the lower layers to deal with novelty. Um, I guess it's it sort of, I don't know, like in, in the history of philosophy, with this sort of stuff with like Hume, with like habit, mental habit, right? That like mm -hmm. we become acclimated to routine things. And then there's the, um, the sort of like stuff that's exceptional that forces you to think and to reintegrate new information. Um, and then that settles down into a habit, right? And then yeah. there's some other traumatic thought experience that like scrambles the circuit momentarily, and then it settles back into routine. And if, if everything's going routinely, well, fucking great. Habits are going to be wonderful. But on a, when a 300-foot tiger <laughs> appears from out of nowhere, you're going to have to start thinking pretty fast, you know? Right. I like how he divides here the uh, sort of parasympathetic role as novel, heuristic, and evolutionary uh, versus the sympathetic role, which is paradigmatic, right? So it's operating in a, in a, in a confined paradigm and optimizing within that paradigm, uh, but it doesn't have these heuristic novel evolutionary functions. Uh, okay, uh, Jake H., go ahead, please. 
Yeah, I think that that does kind of clear up sort of the question that I had for, or at least a little bit, I guess. But just sort of that idea of that system two and sort of system system one by output. But system two handles these kind of regular things like you were just saying, Shane, of it's like this is the regular function. You know, it should be communicating, like because it's part of the functioning of system one or the system ones. They need to communicate with system two to make sure that the output is regulated and all that stuff we discussed last time. But then when things when there's a problem, it sort of communicates in this other language of and you know, and he talks about in this last paragraph that you read of the uh the distinction of the cholinergic and adrenergic chemistries of the parasympathetic and sympathetic systems of like that they're communicating in kind of different languages, but also there's like the potential for kind of some cross talk and like the same, each language could have a different impact on the same system so that they kind of have like, like when system two encounters some novel or weird behavior or something that shouldn't happen it knows what to do with that, which is to send it up to system three. And it doesn't have to worry about trying to solve that within system two because it doesn't have to, doesn't have the, the full context, like it says. And um, yeah, I, I think that's it. Yeah. That's okay. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's just really good. I think we can also call back to the earlier part of this chapter with system one, where system one has its own, the, the little plug between the systems has its own little planning function, right? Like it's if system one has its own routine plans, or each each subdivision has its routine plans. System two is assisting in the carrying out of those routine plans, and it's up to system three to watch out for the novel situations and tell them to adjust. And then there's this like dialectical sort of thing going on where the novelty will eventually sink in as routine. And like that that's the cycle of adaptation, right? Like you're learning to treat things as unremarkable routine sort of activities and then also learning how to integrate brand new stuff into the circuit so that next week it feels like it's routine um, and so on and so on. Okay. Uh, so here we have a uh, figure 32, um, which details essentially the interaction between system three, uh, system one, and then on the sides we have uh, on the right side we have the the sympathetic system, which is system two. Uh, and then on the left side we have the parasympathetic, uh, which is going to be um, connections coming from three uh, down to the system ones um, through this uh, audit ganglion, uh, which I guess is it. Is that that system three star? Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So looking at figure 32, sorry, excuse me. Looking at figure 32, we see how system three is intended to work. Routine information about internal regulation is always available from the corporate regulatory center. Uh, the CRC, uh, which is located on the right hand side in system two. Um, all right. Point S constantly receives filtered news from the CRC. Point Q may request any further data generated by system two. So point Q uh, is uh, connected to S um, and it's on the line downwards from system four. Um, the complex QS is filtering information down to the divisional directorates while the complex RP is filtering information up to the senior management. The entire complex, PQRS, is the machinery for controlling internal homeostasis. Point P is enabled to interrogate divisional operations themselves, which respond to inquiries at point R. So point P, uh, yes, uh, so... Innate, point P is enabled to interrogate divisional operations themselves, which respond to inquiries at point R. So it 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 looks a little bit backwards because the arrows are going the other direction, right? Because like P is at the top of this line and then R is at the bottom. But it's basically like the request comes from P to R, and then it it queries what's going on in the system ones and then sends it up. It, I think is what Beer's trying to say here. Um, 
All of this is a corporate management structure, which constitutes the operations directorate of the firm. Since the RP complex is intended to report upwards, its right to information should be carefully noted, and the role of its direct access, parasympathetic channels, must be properly understood. Remember, somatic information ascending the main vertical axis will be divisional information, coalesced to be called corporate information, for no better reason than that all the divisional operations taken together apparently exhaust the corporation's operations. Again, apparently is the important point there, I think. <laughs> um, the information ascending through the corporate regulatory center is already more than this. It is genuinely about the synergy of the divisions. However, its limitation is its stereotype nature. The structure of its mechanisms is paradigmatic. With the third type of reporting, both problems are overcome. Point P is instigating a kind of internal audit, though not simply financial, nor even necessarily office-based. This is a corporate activity, having short-term synergistic objectives, the Systems 1 have not, which are paradigm-free and System 2 is not. So essentially saying, yeah, there's information coming from all the System 1s up that uh, PR line right there, and you might think that that is corporate information, but just because it is the uh, sum of, or it is the set of all the system ones, does not mean it's properly corporate activity because each of the system ones are interpreting the world in a paradigmatic sense. And when point P goes through what we call system three star, right? Through the AG, the audit ganglion, it is interrogating the system ones with the corporation in mind. It is not interrogating them on a divisional or paradigmatic basis. And because this um, system three star activity is exceptional auditing, it's also not routine. Right. It's 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 kind of like, no, there's something important that we need to know here uh, as opposed to like, oh, OK, just checking in. How are things going? Uh, that kind of question. Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit more about this. Uh, Shane, go ahead. Yeah. So it, it's at this level that we get uh, the emergence of something that's more than the sum of the system one operations. This is where the body proper of the corporation as, as like a, a whole entity that's more than the sum of its parts starts to come into being. And it is because this, this audit capability that the system three has in this uh, PQRS crossroads, it has a model of what's supposed to be going on. It has a kind of, um, uh, what do we call it in, in like proprioception. It is a sense of itself. It is a sense of its own body. Um, and it's then constantly integrating information about the actual, um, performance of the organs, comparing it against its own model, and then querying back for, for stuff. Um, so, I mean, it might, I guess, is, every, is everyone on the same page with this sort of stuff? It might be useful to work through an example of what I think the information flow might look like. So I think it would be that, you know, the system three here, the PQRS thing, maybe notice uh, it, it like it passes some information up to system four, then system four relays that would go up along the RP line. System four sends down some adjustments through the QS line and system three like integrates the new, the new model and relays them downwards to the, to the subdivisions. Then it's listening on the S point to system two. And it, and it, you know, a couple of ticks go by and it's like, okay, this is all fine. This seems to be going as planned. And then it's like, huh, wait, it uses the Q point to query system two. Is it, are you sure about that? Or, you know, give me the last three samples and integrate them. And then it goes, fuck, and goes to the P point and sends down some audit stuff. Um, like, hey, divisions B and D, are you, are you sure you know what you're doing? The responses come up through R. And at, at every point along the way in this example, the information is being integrated with the model the system three has of itself. And at that point, when it gets back, it back its audit, it could then figure out what's gone wrong and issue the corrective instructions downwards and issue the, the report upwards. 
And so the, it's a crossroads. It's a four. It's a four directional loop that's uh, crossing over at this point. Yes, uh, Jeremy, go ahead. Yeah, the first time I read this, I found this whole PQRS thing horribly confusing. And it took me a lot of just pencil and paper and thinking about it to get a sense of it. And I think one of the things that makes it tricky is that each of the points, PQRS, is performing a dual role. On the one hand, it's either uh, communicating up or down, and at the same time, it's either communicating to the left or to the right. It is doing both. And so in regarding each of those points, you have to take into account its dual role, and its dual role is deliberate. Each does two things and is defined by doing two things. And Stafford meant that deliberately. It's not an accident. Um, and therefore, to really understand it, you have to see why each one gets the two roles it has and why those two roles make sense for to be linked together. So I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's it's it's it. And also to understand that there's a fifth role for system three, which is the arousal filter, which is independent, like the. PR mechanism is not doing arousal here. It's just having a conversation back and forth as part of the 3-4 homeostat, not arousing to try and wake up System 5. Right. That's a very good point. Um, there's a whole other role there. Okay, so um, let's go to... Um, I believe the next paragraph is in the diagram. Is that right? In the diagram, the acquisition of information in this form is seen as mediated through special ganglia, centers which do not merely transmit information, but process it too. Thus, each division has its own audit ganglion, reporting to the operations directorate and dealing wholly with the corporate synergy. These ganglia will be brought into action solely for this synergistic purpose. And because every other kind of reporting upward must always fail to comprehend... Excuse me. Must always fail to comprehend the information needs of System 3, which arise beyond the pre-arranged uh, routines of Systems 1 and 2. So again, it's kind of an exceptional system, or it is an exceptional system, and it's a corporate system, uh, and it's different from Systems 1 and 2. Um, this book deals nowhere with the established techniques of scientific management in any detail. Good to get that uh, out, of, out of the way. Uh, page 178, just in case you uh, were wondering. Uh, but we should observe in passing how most of them will be applied by a competent System 3. The PQRS complex is ideally placed to use every kind of optimizing tool in its direction of current operations, from, uh, from inventory theory to mathematical programming. A dynamic current model of the firm's internal working must in fact emerge at this level and offers the ideal management tool for the control of internal stability. The final point to note about System 3 is the existence of the arousal filter, which models the reticular formation of the brainstem. The collateral fibers feeding the algodonic system are clearly shown in Figure 32, and the purpose of this system has been dealt with at some length already. We shall return to it when we reach the algodonode in System 5. So we see the, the fibers in the diagram um, going up through the arousal filter, uh, the AF, and then that passes onward. But we are not going to talk about that in detail right now. Uh, we're going to talk about that when we get to System 5. The arousal job at the third level is in fact the usual filtering job. Statistical criteria must be established to ensure that the ascending algodonic information on the vertical axis of whatever kind is not simply absorbed by the PQRS homeostat in the performance of its own function, for it would then be lost in the upward reports from point P, which, after all, will be about the effective functioning of the homeostat 
and not about discrete internal events. Those are the ones we seek algodonically to monitor. So this is a separate channel, as Jeremy said. Uh, it's a separate channel from PQRS. It's doing something different from the homeostasis maintenance. Uh, Shane, go ahead. This reminds me of the earlier thing, uh, way back in the earlier chapters, with that horrible brass and wood machine thing with its levers and stuff and like the, the dials that you could turn. Um, and I think the point that Stafford put out there that you, even if you sort of jam it all the way so all the, you know, the, 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 the lights light up red or whatever it is, you still need this like little bit of play. You need a bit of freedom there to ensure that the dial doesn't get jammed um, one way or the other. Um, so, which is perhaps slightly contrary to our usual thinking on efficiency and stuff like that, right? That like you would, you would hope that the PQRS homeostat would perfectly absorb all of the information in the system. And yet you kind of know that it couldn't possibly. And so you'd better leave this excessive channel open. So there's a little bit of outflow. There's a, there's a sort of structural incentive to not pursue maximal efficiency because that would mean crystallization. It would mean you'd be stuck. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's kind of a given when you're dealing with an uncertain environment that it's impossible at any stage to completely capture what's going on in a adaptive way. Uh, there needs to be room for exception handling. Um, okay, uh, Jake H, go on. Uh, yeah, that that's like... You know, I've, I've been, been thinking about this, like these systems, right, and how to implement them within, like, an organization that's not, you know, a capitalist firm, and thinking about like which ones should be automated or which parts should be automated versus not. And it really seems that the, like, these kind of the steps between the systems could be automated in a sense, or at least relegated to kind of machines in a way. You know, like there could be input from one end, input from the other end, but like. You know, whereas the sort of systems themselves that actually need to have, like you said, this this ability to handle that unknown or that variance needs to be like made up of people that can that can handle variance, you know, in a way that like uh, machines can't. And and I think it also kind of goes back to that, like the fact or something that this this book has kind of hit on a bunch of times of this sort of the false dichotomy between horizontal and vertical and like decentralized and centralized where and in this case it'd be like between you know perfectly uh modeling the the thing that you're trying to work on versus leaving versus not modeling at all and leaving all room for just like uh human ingenuity or whatever you know it, it just sort of this way that he's kind of building both into the system and i think that's just a very unique way of looking at it very interesting when it comes to trying to trying to talk to people about this stuff because people really want to put things into that one box versus the other box. You know, they don't want to sort of think that there's, or not that they don't want to think, but that it's tough for people to sort of conceive, I guess, of this, unless you've thought about it a bunch of like having the room for these kind of things in a way that is still um, like laid out, but not like prescribed, you know? Right. So, um, unfortunately, we're not going to get the details about this until we cover System 5, uh, like the real nitty-gritty specifics. Um, there, It does say that there are statistical filters on the arousal filter, uh, statistical criteria. So it is partially uh, automated in that sense, but... Um, I'm sure there's like work of interpretation that will be done as well. Uh, it's basically like the emergency uh, notification that that's going through this channel. Um, uh, Shane, go ahead. I'm also kind of thinking in like less automated contexts, um, the ability for people to bypass layers of the hierarchy and just go straight to the top. Um, because I think I remember like if, I remember watching like Blackadder. Blackadder goes fourth, fourth season of it, where you have Stephen um, Stephen Fry's character, Lord General Melchus, who's the the general, right? And you have his secretary, Captain Darling, and then Rowan Atkinson's character, Blackadder, pretty routinely just barges into Melchus's office 
And then Darling comes trailing after, like, oh, sorry, sir, I couldn't keep him out. And some people would wonder, it's like, oh, but they should just have maximal security on the door, so that's impossible. But it's actually kind of essential to the functioning, well, of the plot, but also probably of that military unit, that it's possible for Blackadder to simply barge in. And that, like, Captain Darling shouldn't be able to perfectly filter that information. There, there shouldn't be perfect continents in this, in this way, right? Um, you kind of do need some ability to just let excess through so that um, the emergency arousal filters in this like personal, interpersonal sort of context can happen. In an automated context, you'd have these like statistical filters and stuff. But this reminds me a lot of just barging into the CEO's office or whatever. Yeah, um, I think it is important to have the big red button <laughs> to call for the emergency. Um, and it's, I mean, I assume that I, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we're going to talk about it in more detail in, in, in system five. And I'll just be speculating about the way it's arranged um, until we actually get some more details there. Uh, so, so we'll, we'll put a pin in that and we'll, we'll move on to the final section of the chapter. Um, Notes on the problems of systemic interfaces. There are evidently three interfaces between the three systems so far considered. The systemic interaction between systems two and three presents no special problem, since each is managerially controlled by the same authority, the Corporate Operations Directorate. But systems one are managerially controlled by chief executives of autonomous divisions, to whom the principle of accountability applies. They accept the policymaking of the corporation, which impinges on their activities down the central command axis. But their reaction to other kinds of interference at the interfaces between their own systems one and the corporate systems two and three may be very different. Here then is a major snag. It is the hoary old problem of central control written in a new form. Let this much, however, be clear at once. The snag is endemic to large-scale organization. It has not been invented here. All the cybernetic model has done is to identify the precise nature of the snag. It apparently has two components. Firstly, there is the one-two interface. This has to do with recognizing that there are other autonomous divisions than my own and that they have rights as well. Especially, these others have the right not to be undermined by me, however pure my own motives are. Secondly, there is the 1-3 interface. This has to do with recognizing that my own autonomous division is part of a corporation, and that it, ha it too has rights. Especially, sad as it seems, the corporation has the right to inhibit and, if necessary, to liquidate my autonomous division. The first component is about interdivisional collaboration. The se second is about corporate synergy. So interdivisional co uh, collaboration is the 1-2 interface, and corporate synergy is the 1-3 interface. The problem will not vanish because of cybernetics. It will not be resolved by shouting. There is, But there is a temporary solution to declare roundly that the divisions are not, after all, autonomous, and that the firm has been wholly centralized. Then, divisional executives who cannot stomach this edict resign, and for a while, the monolithic firm runs on. It does not work. The whole of this book is de dedicated to showing it cannot work. So the pendulum swings. The next temporary solution is ready-made to declare roundly that the firm has been wholly decentralized. Then, those who have been working at the center of the synergistic earth for, excuse me, then those who have been working at the center for synergistic policies see that their work is doomed. They resign, and for a while, the fragmented firm runs on. This does not work either. It cannot work. The pendulum must swing again, or the corporation blows apart in a series of takeovers. There is no solution to this problem independent of common sense. Pathetically enough, collaborative common sense becomes scarcer the higher one goes in an organization, for psychological reasons which are not obscure. 
Cybernetics identifies this problem and specifies where it lies. Cybernetics illuminates the problem, indicating the solutions towards which nature itself has evolved. Cybernetics provides a language sufficiently rich and perceptive to make it possible to discuss the problem objectively without heat. There are people, whom the gentle reader will not know, who find it much more fun to fight it out across the spurious frontiers of their own ambition. Sheen, go ahead. This is a, I love this little bit at the end here. Um, the, I got a little bit of a whiff of Hegel off of some of this, right? That the, the recognition that there are others, right? And that there's a promise here of, of like bringing some stability to that relation, right? That, oh yeah. In, integrating, in, integrating my autonomy with everyone else's and also recognizing that the aggregates that we form because they take on this, because they have this emergent quality and they, they have this, uh, you know, the more than the sum of their parents sort of quality, that those are, those are legitimately autonomous systems themselves. Right. Um, yes. And yeah, it's, I don't know if that's, that's pretty interesting stuff. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, for me, the most interesting thing here is that beer is saying the only solution to the problem of centralization versus decentralization which arises from the 1-2 uh, interface and the 1-3 interface is common sense. Um, and that the higher you go on the, the in the structure, the less common sense there's going to be. So it kind of suggests like cybernetics offers a language in which expressions of common sense can be clearly articulated but it cannot really transcend that. Uh, it, it, it simply allows us in a sort of very like analytic philosophy way to state the terms of the conversation as clearly as possible and as rationally as possible without resorting to sort of ad hominem uh, spurious frontiers of our own ambition. Uh, uh, Jake, go ahead. Yeah, I, you know, when I first read this, like, I kind of had that same reaction that Rudy, you had, like, what does common sense mean, right? Like, who's common sense? Like, what? Because that, that term is so often, like, misused or or just used, you know, to, like, represent all sorts of things. But I think, sort of, it tease out that a little bit from this. I think what he's trying to say, or what he's saying here is, like, the relations between people, uh, like, the common sense of, like, well, we both have this com we both do have this common goal and therefore we, we need to find some way of working working together to solve it. Which, you know, like he's saying here of the you know, as you get higher up, it becomes about people's personal like ambitions within with of just like gaining power or within the company or all these other things that are tied up, you know, because as it as it gets abstracted further from like the actual work that's being done by the system ones. Uh and so I, I think but I, I and so, and so that's kind of my, my thought of what he means by common sense of just that, like, the, the thing is that, like, if you get the two people in a room together, absent that sort of, like, larger, like, problems of, like, the psychological problems of, like, well, I want to be in control kind of thing. If you were able to, like, get, get rid of that part and just get the two people who are doing jobs in the same room, then, then they'd be able to sort it out or you'd be able to sort it out somehow. That's my thought of it. But uh, I, I think it's also good to just, like, you know, when people like, like, I'm glad that he's kind of admitting that this problem is a problem that you're going to see in all large, in all large firms and any, any organization of sufficient size and scope. And there's no way around it. You know, this isn't like a, a magic bullet. It's just like, as something that I, something that really appealed to me about cybernetics when I first encountered it in this book, when I first started reading it, I'm just like, you know, these problems are never going to go there. These problems are not something that can be just uh, ignored and they're not going to go away by, you know, having the right thing. It's just a matter of, of bringing them into uh, concreteness and bringing them into view so that they can be actually tackled by people who aren't, you know, like already advantaged enough to be able to see the whole thing or have the, the social capital or whatever to be able to like enact their will. And so it's just a matter of like, well, once, once we actually uh, reveal the, the, the relations within society or within uh, an organization, then that's when we can actually start to tackle them. 
in whatever way that comes out. And, you know, he's not trying to prescribe a way to do that, but just here's how to reveal these, these things. Right. And I do, uh, just before we move on to uh, Matt and Rudy, uh, I do want to just mention, like, what Beer is saying here kind of has its basis in Aristotelian philosophy, right? Like, when we think about uh, Aristotle's virtue ethics, one of the things that he applied or he appeals to is the idea of phrenesis, uh, which is practical wisdom. Um, and being a developed ethical individual means having phrenesis. And if you don't have phrenesis, if you don't have practical wisdom, um, you can understand sort of abstract uh, moral dictates um, and not be able to act on them because circumstances require uh, judgment, right? Um, and so I think what Beer is apply, uh, is appealing to here is like, yeah, we're giving you a framework, but ultimately an organization without people, uh, sorry, without individuals who have practical wisdom and without, uh, divisions that have practical wisdom, um, is not going to function well. And to sort of offload that problem onto the question of centralization versus decentralization is like a category mistake. Um, so uh, that I think that's what I'm seeing here. Uh, Matt and then uh, Rudy, please go ahead. Yeah, um, I, 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 th I think a, 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 a lot of this lo loops into uh, the, the part where he talks about, uh, you know, system three being non-paradigmatic. Because like it, it seems like um, systems two and three, and I guess even system one to an extent, are, are like very much uh, uh, about you know uh, um, uh, having um, you know organizations and I guess organs you know that that really just don't fundamentally speak the same language. Like internally, your pancreas is regulated totally differently with totally different chemical signals, totally different types of cells than than your liver. But you know, like they have to you know. They, they have to have a way to communicate and uh, be, um, you know, uh, and, 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 and mutually influence each other. And so, you know, so, so I guess even system one to an extent in terms of like how exactly the systems from your, the, the, um, the, the signals from your pancreas are, are transduced, um, uh, to your nervous system. And I guess also to, uh, you know, also happens to hormones, but I mean, um, uh, um, and in, 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 in the same way, you know, like you know, you're, you're coordinating, you know, um, uh, the copper mines with the, uh, with the port facilities. They speak different languages and, uh, you know, uh, and, and figuring out, um, how to have, um, you know, uh, 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 you know, uh, system three, uh, uh, three style in particular, but, you know, uh, mediate, you know, those totally like incommensurable, you know, um, internal paradigms. I, I think like that's like that's where the action that like, you know, they don't speak the same language. What can they, you know, what, what what common signposts like can they agree upon, you know, so that they can communicate at all? Yeah, which uh, very much sort of gets at the goals of analytic philosophy. Uh, you know, what what Wittgenstein is trying to get at in the Tractatus. Uh, so it's 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 interesting in that way. Uh, Rudy, please go ahead. I guess what I was reminded here is like, you know, common sense will kind of depend on your class background. The higher up you go up the hierarchy, you'll inherently be more competitive and more willing to fuck others up. Just thinking of, you know, the Bogdanos collective philosophy of workers as having a fewer idea of getting things to work together. And how inherently there's this contradiction, like to become a manager, you have to be an asshole, but the more of an asshole you are, the less cooperative you will become. So at some point, this this just ends up having a like Sears moment, like they say in People's Republic of Walmart, that this guy just ideologically drove the company to the ground because he wanted to do some things. So there's like, you can never have a good company under this capitalism because to be a, the boss, you have to be a psychopath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the sort of... Yeah, no, I think you put it very well uh, that there is a dynamic there that inherently works against the functioning of the system. Uh, and um, it's sort of that old thing about um, you want the king who doesn't want to rule. 
<laughs> but then how does he become king? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that is the kind of like psychological peculiar peculiarities that beer was alluding to, uh, in that, uh, sort of elliptical sentence that he was, he was saying there, uh, Shane, go ahead. One other small thing that kind of jumped out of me here that I found interesting was that the problem of uh, parathole or like individual group cohesion is not just phrased along that kind of one axis. It's now split across two different interfaces. There's a triangular relation now. Um, that there's the relation, there's the, the, the ways that the system one units are synchronized by system two and the way that they're controlled by system three. And they're not the same problem for beer. Their facets, and they, again, this like multi-perspectival, multifaceted sort of um, approach to analyzing these kinds of things. It's it, it's a it's an interesting complication of the usual sort of thing of like, well, you see, there's individuals, and then the group has to beat the shit out of them to make them comply or whatever, and it's it's a very one-dimensional sort of thing. Yeah, definitely, because that would be the first error he discusses, right? Is like, oh, let's just abolish all autonomy and have central direction. Uh, authoritarian central direction and then it's like oh well that's like logically impossible that it would work um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah you think also maybe like I think maybe touching a lot Matt was talking about earlier with the heterogeneous nature of these like system one components that like we're, we're talking about a framework for integrating different things in, um, so that they can cooperate with each other I mean, a lot of traditional organizations rely on homogeneity instead, right? That, like, the way they gain control is to flatten everything until it looks the same and behaves the same. Yeah. Um, and that's, so that's the, the shoot pass. Yeah. It's the old thing of seeing, like, a state. Yeah, exactly, right? Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that gives us some sort of a sense of what could... Because, I mean, you've got that whole sort of doomer sort of thing of, well, you know, well, how could we ever not see, like, a state or some such thing like that, right? Like, if all of modernity has this flattening, destructive kind of uh, impact on lively autonomous systems, if it, if it has tended to flatten them out into identical uh, cogs, then what hope could there ever be for, for human flourishing in an advanced society? I think beer isn't really indicating, no, I mean, you can integrate heterogeneous components and stuff if you fucking know what you're doing. Like, it's not a problem. Yeah, it's it's a problem you have to grapple with dynamically, right? Uh, and again, that sort of gets at why Pickering says that, you know, beer has a non-modern ontology. Um, it's not seeing, like, a state here. Mm -hmm. um, Indeed. Okay, well, that is going to do it for chapter 11. Uh, we have finally finished this chapter. And uh, we... Uh, oh, sorry. We, that's going to do it for chapter 12. We have finally finished chapter 12. Uh, and we are moving on next time to chapter 13, Environments of Decision System 4. Uh, so we'll be uh, covering System 4 exclusively in chapter 13. Uh, so I look forward to seeing you all for that uh, next week. Indeed. Okay. See you. Uh, see you. Bye. Bye. Bye.